2: Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand on for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, and our only motive, really, we're not making any money off this. We just want you to know Jesus better and fall more in love with Him. Our teaching program, at the end of it, every time this beautiful voice, May Cruzado, Pastor Ken's wife, says, fall in love with your Bible, you will fall in love with Jesus. We promise. And that's what this program is dedicated to doing. Here are the phone numbers for your live calls. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I know this is redundant, but I want you to be safe. Um, Use the free KSLR mobile app with your hands free addition uh, You can just hit the call now button on the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio audience. Well, we can get right to questions. There's nothing going on on a Tuesday evening here. So let me get to some questions while we wait for the phone calls. One thing I would ask all of you to do is to pray for Paula. She is away at her pastor's wife's retreat. Um, I just got off the phone with her. She's having a great time, but she's completely lost her voice so pray that her voice gets better by Thursday because I don't know who my date would be on the date day edition if Paula couldn't talk so uh, please keep Paula in your prayers her and the ladies who are there they're having a really really great time okay here is my first question this one comes from Javier Javier says do you allow preachers with differing views of doctrine to share your pulpit Uh, Javier the answer is no but but let me answer that with a question well why would I want to do that what would be the value of that other than to cause confusion? You know, one of the things that we do here at Calvary Chapel, in fact, really the only thing that we do, is we teach the Bible. We teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We start at the beginning of a book. We don't end until we're done with that, that particular book. And then we start a new book. And, and in doing that, our purpose is to help our people formulate doctrine. Why would we want to confuse them? There are times when I will say things. Uh, this Sunday and the next Sunday is an example where I will say other people believe this, or this is what some believe. But and here's why that's not not right. But but I, I just don't see any value. I I, I can't imagine uh, giving somebody with the people that God has entrusted uh, me with their spiritual health, with their well-being. Uh, my job is to, to teach the Word. Uh, why would I want to expose them to something that, quite frankly, I believe is incorrect? Now, that doesn't mean I'm a doctrine snob. It doesn't mean that I think I've got all of the answers. It's just that our job as pastors is to teach the people that God has blessed us with. And the way we do that is by presenting to them what we believe is true and pure doctrine. Uh, So that's what we do, Javier. I I just can't imagine why I would uh, ever... um, ever do that um, you know there, there are things that don't really matter non-essentials and we're free to disagree with other people but uh, in a teaching situation in a church you want the consistency I think the one thing that people that go to Calvary Chapel uh, since we've been in the beginning 22 and a half plus years ago now um, is is our church really hasn't changed much in all of these years. Now, our church has grown and, um, you know, the, the, the work God is doing in the people and in their hearts is great, but our church, the, the style, the format, the things that we do, none of that has really changed much at all. So what I would ask you to do is, is, is consider what's the point of the question. Um, we do the same thing that we've always been doing. Um, I'm on my third time through the New Testament. Uh, I haven't taught all of the books of the Old Testament yet because I only have one Old Testament study per week. But I've gone through most of it. And um, I just can't see any value, Javier, in in confusing people with differing views of doctrine or to allow somebody to come in um, uh, w- would be giving tacit approval to the things that they're teaching. So, anybody that shares uh, my pulpit, and we do occasionally have people come in after men's treats and things like that, uh, we'll occasionally have people come in. Um, but, um, but we're going to have good, solid doctrine in common, uh, and, and I'm not going to have to go unteach or correct some of the, the, their views so I hope that answers your question and doesn't make me sound like I think I'm a know-it-all because that's certainly not the truth Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here's a question that I get a lot and I never understand it Wayne wants to know do you have to go to church to be a Christian Wayne let me ask you this if you're a Christian why wouldn't you want to go to church that's where God's people are even the annoying ones that's where you can use the gifts that God has given you to minister to others, comforting others, Paul says, with the comfort that you yourself have received from God. Uh, this is a place where you get to deny yourself and serve others in the body of Christ. Uh, this is a place where you go because Jesus is here. He says he's in the middle of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So every time we gather, uh, Jesus is here. And I love the fact that he's here. So I, I, I don't want to really understand the question. You know, sometimes people think, well, um, do I have to be a churchgoer in order to be saved? Well, if, if, you're, if your point is you want to spend the time to goof off or you want to spend the time to do stuff with family, uh, what better thing could you do with your family than to be in the house of God? And what better example could you could you give to your children, uh, a place where families can worship together and learn about God together and use their gifts together? You know, Wayne, one of the, the, the favorite ministries that we have here at Calvary Chapel, for me personally, is a ministry called Growing in Servanthood, and it's where uh, children serve alongside their parents in certain ministries. Now, the, the thing that I like the most is on Communion Sunday, because every Sunday, the uh, first Sunday of every month when we take communion, I look out and I'm watching little kids working with our usher ministry, and they're passing out the communion elements. What a great, great lesson. I mean, that's, that's the best family thing you could possibly do. So I... I I've just never, ever been able to understand why people wouldn't want to go to church. I understand special occasions come up and occasionally people miss. That's that's not a problem. But just not wanting to go because you're tired, what better place to be refreshed than in the house of God? What better place to lose yourself? Jesus said if you lose yourself for his sake, you'll find your life. What better place to do it than serving others, giving out instead of always giving in? Now, I understand, Wayne, that a bunch of churches in uh, our church culture have made church almost meaningless, Uh, putting on shows, telling cute stories, no real solid Bible teaching. Um, I also understand that there are some churches that have drawn this process out to where people spend three and four or five hours sometimes um, in, in church on a Sunday. Uh, I think balance is a good thing, but but if you 're a believer, if you 're really a born again Christian, it would seem to me that you couldn't wait to get to the house of God. You know, I was asked recently because of my health issues uh, that that I had earlier in this year, and I 'm doing fine, so thank you. but uh, um, well are, am I considering retiring i 'm thinking, well, what would I do on a Friday night? Seriously, what would I do on a Friday night if I wasn 't here teaching the Bible? I can't imagine. It's not like Paul and I go out and party. So what would I do if I wasn't here? Wednesday night I get to teach the Old Testament people to some really hungry Christians who want to know more about the Lord. And then on Sunday, of course, when we have our our largest crowds, uh, this place is absolutely electric. It is the fun happening place to be because everybody's coming. And when I say everybody, I'm speaking generally. But but the people are coming here because they, they want to meet with Jesus. They want to learn to be more like him. It's an opportunity. Every Sunday, um, maybe she misses some Sundays, but almost every Sunday when Paul and I are praying for, for our, our breakfast before we head out the door, uh, she'll say, Pastor Ron, somebody's going to get saved today, or people are going to get saved today. Who wouldn't want to be here? So you can be a Christian, give your life to Jesus, and maybe you've never been in church. But you can't really stay in that place. Hebrews chapter 10 says, uh, of the church, beginning verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day. You know, if the day is, it's the day Jesus is coming back. I would love it, love it, love it, love it, if Jesus would come back, if the rapture of the church would happen on a Sunday, that way me and all my friends and family wouldn't have to travel too far. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. This is an anonymous question, um, maybe a little touchy. Um, he or she says, two marriage questions. How often should Christians be having sex? and what is or is not permitted in terms of sexual acts. Uh, anonymous, the, the, the question of how often Christians should be having sex uh, is, is very personal. There's, there's no way to, 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 there's no standard. The Bible doesn't talk about uh, frequency, uh, but here's what happens. Husbands and wives, especially Christian husbands and wives, they, they get into a rhythm that works for them. And so we we just, this is one of those things where there's no real answer to uh, how often. But here's what uh, I can say, whether you're the husband or the wife, uh, you should be willing to have sex as often as your partner wants it. Your body's not your own, you're bought with a price. You should be willing to engage in making love with your spouse as often as he or she wants it. So I think that's the best way to answer. Now, with regard to what Israel is not permitted in terms of sexual acts, biblically there's only one sexual act that God forbids, and that's sodomy. To to have anal sex is is uh, forbidden by the Lord. It's it's something that's awful. It's a misuse of our bodies. So other than that, pretty much anything goes. If you read the Song of Songs, uh, Solomon and his wife describe in detail. Um, um, sexual acts, uh, and and there's almost nothing that's excluded. So they do it in very poetic language. It's not uh, uh, gross or anything, but um, it's just something that, that is between you and your spouse. Now, here's one prohibition. Uh, you don't want to do anything that makes your spouse uncomfortable. You don't want to do anything that makes him or her violate their conscience. So that's where individual couples can draw a line, not necessarily because God says it's not good, or, or he, he, He's given our bodies to be enjoyed. So feel free to engage in whatever sex the two of you agree on, as long as it's not uh, anal sex. That is something that, of course, God forbids. So I hope that answers your question and is as delicate as I can be. Here is a question from John. John says, I've heard you say that believing in any God other than Jesus is delusional. Why is believing in Jesus not delusional as well? Uh, John, I don't, I don't usually use the word delusional, so that, that wouldn't have been the word, but, but it makes the point. Um, uh, believing in any other God than Jesus is delusional because there is no other God. Jesus is the only God, and that's why believing in Jesus is not delusional. Now, here's what we can say. You know, it's it's very fashionable to say that, you know, all people who are sincere and they're raised in a particular religion, religion uh, everybody who's sincere is is going to end up in the same road, just taking different paths to the same destination. But you see, that can't be true, John. If what I believe as a Christian is true, then what every other person of any other religion believes is not true see two things both can't be true if they are in contradiction one to another so um, for instance a a Muslim or a Buddhist um, somebody um, uh, who is Hindu um, they have very firm beliefs and by the way all religions declare exclusivity But, but because they do we have to find out if they're true And that's the most important question. It's okay to believe whatever you want if you're willing to suffer the consequences. It's not okay to believe something and on that day of judgment, finding out that what you believed in was in vain. So here's why believing in Jesus is not delusional. It's because it's the truth. Truth is objectively measured. What? is the basis for me saying that what we believe is true and nothing else is? It's the evidence. The evidence that Jesus Christ lived, that he died, and that he didn't stay dead is overwhelming. No reasonable person can doubt that Jesus really lived, he really died, and he rose from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. So to deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father... The only name, Peter says, under heaven, by which men must be saved. To deny that uh, puts you in a place where you have to deal with the consequences of the evidence. So this isn't blind faith or dumb faith. This isn't, well, some people believe, I just can't believe. Look at the evidence and come to a conclusion. Now, you may look at the evidence. You may conclude that Jesus is true. It is who he says he is. But then you may decide of your own free will not to serve him. At least that's honest. He's God. I know he's God. I just don't care. and I'm willing to go to hell. But see, that's not what most people do. We want to believe that we can do what we want and God's going to be okay with it. But the evidence is overwhelming. I want you to think about this, John. One man, miraculously born, born into poverty, changed the history of the world as no man, no group of men ever has. For millennia, the evidence of Jesus changing bad people's hearts is overwhelming. I'm one of those people, John. My heart was ugly. My heart was hard. I met Jesus and everything changed. So not only do we have the evidence of an empty tomb, the historical evidence that Jesus was indeed really a person. But we have the evidence that's before us where billions of people throughout the centuries have been transformed because of belief in this one man. So the evidence is overwhelming. I could make the same case for the evidence surrounding the Bible, John. The evidence is overwhelming. You just have to be interested in enough to find out what is true. So again, Paul says if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied. We who are Christians are to be pitied more than all people. If what we believe isn't true, I want to know it. The problem is that nobody's ever been able to prove to me that any other belief system had any evidence at all. I understand people being raised a certain way. I understand people believing it. There are some very, very, very sincere, genuinely sincere people who believe all kinds of crazy things. But sincerity is not the test. Truth is. And Jesus Christ has been proven beyond doubt to be the Son of God who is God the Son. So, John, that's why believing in Jesus is not delusional, because I can prove my case. And anybody with an honest intellectual pursuit of God will come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's the evidence. Hope that helps, John. Phones are quiet today. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. Here is a question from Harrison. He wants to know, uh, how do you apply the power of the cross in your daily life? Great question Harrison. Um, The cross equals dying. Uh, You know, we've got a lot of superstition about the cross, but the cross is a symbol of death. The cross doesn't save us, Jesus dying on it does. That's very important. So the way you apply the power of the cross in daily life is to die every day. That's what Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, that's absolutely saying no to you so you can say yes to him, and then follow him. And so that's what we have to do, Harrison, we've got to apply that. The power of the cross every day, that means we have to die. We have to say, Jesus, I want what you want, your will, not my will be done. Um, When I'm tempted, when my flesh wants something, I'm going to say no. And that's what it means to apply the power of the cross. There's no uh, magic. It's a decision of our own will to say yes to God, which means that we have to say no to us. So I hope that makes sense to you, Harrison. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Debbie holding on line one. Debbie, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Debbie. Um, quick question. I have been wanting to ask you for a long time um, because once in a blue moon, I get this question asked and I really don't know how to answer it. So getting back to what you were saying as far as the the evidence of Christ, you know, raising from the dead, when sometimes I get, you know, uh, people asking me, where is the physical evidence? You know, and, and I'm like, well, it, the evidence is, if you look at, you know, all you have to do is just go into the Bible and there it is. All the evidence that you need to know is there um and they also and or I'll even go back and tell them you know you can go into really cuz the bible is is Israel's history you know so I'll tell them you know the <clears throat> it's all in Israel's history and if you need further proof of of things like that then maybe you can go into like I don't know you know history books for Israel, I don't know. I said, I usually go just through the Bible, just straight through yeah. the Bible. So how would you answer that question?
2: Yeah, Debbie, the, the problem with, with, with talking to unbelievers about the Bible is they don't believe in the Bible. The Bible has no credibility with them. Um, So so I would point, uh, somebody who's really seeking, I would point to secular history. All they have to do, and and, and we live in the age of information, so the the information's available. It's not only available, but it's available for free. Uh, The the secular history um, validates the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I I mentioned to a a questioner last week that that, uh, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian writing for Rome, uh, certainly not a believer. Roman enemy of of Christ um, writes about uh, the the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, early writings, not only of the church fathers, but but of secular historians, um, Herodotus um, um, and others. Um, Herodotus, of course, was way before, but but talking about the prophecies of, of the Christ, uh, the fulfillment, the historical fulfillment of Christ is available out there. Uh, to, to anybody who really wants to look. And the question's so important, Debbie, what I would do is challenge them to find out. Uh, how would you find out that Shakespeare lived? How would you find out that Abraham Lincoln lived? Um, um, they lived so much so long ago. Um, we, we open secular history books and find out. So one of the ways that they can do it, all you've got to do is Google the historical Jesus, and you're going to get a lot of of, of critics and, and and liberal scholars Um, So you have to be careful. But nobody denies the historicity of Jesus Christ. Uh, I can recommend a book by F.F. Bruce called New Testament History, Uh, and in that book, it's a book that, in his bibliography, he has all kinds of secular sources and referrals to to, um, um, early historians who recognized that Jesus was real and wrote about some of the things that he said and did uh there's a book called josh mcdowell or by josh mcdowell called the new evidence that demands a verdict that has an entire chapter uh based on to the the secular historians uh, acknowledgement that jesus was a real person so that's what they've got to do debbie but they've got to be interested enough to find out debbie thank you very much for your call nigel i'm going to ask you to hold over the break we'd love to have your questions so please keep holding um you know Whenever somebody, and it's just for everybody out there, somebody's asking you skeptical or cynical questions, what we have to do is ask them, do you really want to know? If you really want to know, the answers are out there. So, hear the music. We're at the end of the first half hour of the program. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. We will be back on the other side of the break. Nigel, please hold. We'll see you in two minutes.
1: to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
2: welcome back to the second half of the program we'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 nigel thank you for holding your on the air
4: uh, awesome. Uh, yes, thank you, Pastor Ron, for taking my call. Uh-huh. I had a question. I uh, was reading through Acts, and I've also seen, of course, Jesus say similar things. Um, but in Acts 14, Paul is preaching with Barnabas, and he looks at a man who is crippled, and he it says that he see, he looks him in the eye, and he sees that he has faith to be made well. He says, "Get up and walk," and the man jumps up. You know, and uh, also, you know, I've, I've seen Jesus say. Uh, or read in scripture that Jesus has said, uh, you know, "I see that uh, your faith has, or your faith has made you well," and um, and I'm not really sure what to do with that, uh, knowing the the deception of, of name it claim it and uh, and prosperity gospel kind of kind of message out there.
2: I, I, those are are hard um, passages, um, Nigel, because uh, they're so misused and abused. Um, The same thing happens in Acts chapter 3, where Peter looks at the beggar at the beautiful gate and and saw that he had the faith to be healed as well. So uh, uh, we have to remember that the apostles were given enormous power to do signs and wonders. So these are not normative experiences for the Christian. One of the things that we read right by so often in the book of Acts is we we see all the miracles that are being done. we assume because they're Jesus' followers and we're Jesus' followers, we should still be doing those miracles. Uh, The Bible is very clear to point out that the miracles were done by the apostles. Um, And in other cases, like with Philip and Stephen, Uh, They were also given power to perform miracles, but those were sign miracles that enabled them to declare Jesus. So what happens in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 14? uh, When Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed, and when Peter looked at him and saw that they had faith to be healed, it's not the the, uh, recognition of the person's faith. What this would be would be insight given. By the power of the Holy Spirit, to let them know, He would look at him, and, and it's almost. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this very simple. Uh, it's almost like the Holy Spirit would say, "Heal him." It, again, it's not a response to their faith, although we receive everything from God by faith. But, but when Paul walked by this cripple. The Holy Spirit was just letting them know it's time to heal him. Now, Nigel, I've had situations like that. Now, I'm not one. We're not a, a, a name it and claim it or prosperity or a faith healing church uh, in, in the sense that we stretch what the Bible says. Um, but, but I've looked at people before and the Spirit of God would speak to my heart and say, pray for her or pray for him. And uh, I, it doesn't happen often. But when it happens, the person almost always gets healed. Now, we're not talking about li- lame people or blind people. Uh, we're talking about people with, with, with just normal illnesses or normal sicknesses. Uh, we have a school here, so at any time you'd be walking in our foyer, uh, there's kids sitting in the, in the, in the hallway, uh, and they're ready to go home. Mom and Dad are coming to get them because they're, they've, they've, they've been sick. And and there's times when I'll, I'll, I'll always go pray for him, but there are times when the Lord will say, "You're going to feel a lot better now, um, so you'll be fine." And 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 God just always does that. So this is something that is a response to the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's not Paul with any vision of his own or Peter with any vision of his own. This is the work of the Holy Spirit identifying uh, a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, um, um, simply God letting them know what he wanted to do for that person. So it's not something that we're supposed to, 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 to uh, imitate. Um, this isn't something where we can say, well, I see he has superior faith. It's not that at all. This is just Paul and or Peter or any of the other apostles recognizing that this is the work that God wants to do. Why would God want to do it? Well, two reasons. One, he wants to use the miracle so that others around them can see. And in every case with this kind of miracle, people would be around and get saved. Paul or Peter would have the opportunity to preach Jesus. But the other thing that we need to understand is God is merciful. And sometimes God looks at people with great mercy and he touches them. And God is sovereign, so there's no rhyme nor reason. It, it, there's no explanation why He'll heal one person and not heal the next person. Uh, I've had a, a, I've been legally blind for um, many, many years. I haven't driven now in 19 years, um, and and I've actually seen God uh, heal other people uh, when when I was asked to pray for them by the Lord, uh, and yet I still remain without vision. I think my faith is fine. So uh, th- there's no easy or formula answer to this. This is just Paul, in this particular case, in Acts chapter 4, when Paul looked at him, it was like the Holy Spirit was saying him now. Does that help at all?
4: It does. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Ron.
2: Okay, Nigel. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. One of the things that we always have to remember when we're studying our Bibles is we have to read what's going on i just recently watched a youtube video um some lady uh, was saying that uh, um when her husband died um that she wouldn't leave the grave until they they put the, the 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 tomb down in the in the ground and when she was asked why she said because um um i was waiting to make sure there was no resurrection i just figured out that that the resurrection would happen before they put him in the ground. So if, if that was the case, I wanted to be there for it, and I was still believing for it. Um, and, and, of course, it didn't happen. And her justification for saying it was, well, when Jesus sent out the 72, he said that they would he cast out demons, he would he heal the sick and raise the dead. Well, th- that didn't happen with the 72 when he sent them out. She said they were disciples, I'm a disciple, so that's what he was telling me, so that's why he was believing. That's to misunderstand what the passage of Scripture is saying. Jesus did send out the twelve two by two and told them, gave them power to cast out demons, heal the sick and raise the dead, but not with the seventy-two at all. So we have to read what's going on, and we can't just automatically assume that what God allowed an apostle to do he also will uh, um, uh, allow or or enable us to be able to do as well. Uh, I think that's where a lot of people get messed up with their doctrine. Uh, Let's go to Daniel on line one. Daniel, thanks for holding. You're on the air.
4: Hey, uh, Pastor Ron. Um, I just want to ask you a couple questions, and then I I guess another one while I was hearing your answers that you gave previously to the, they were talking about healing. Uh, My first question originally was, The gift of knowledge, you know, I was reading the other day how the Holy Spirit gives the gift of knowledge to one, you know, one believer. And it's at the Spirit's discretion as to which gifts he gives to believers, you know, for the edification of the church and the building of it. Um, But um, so I was wondering, can you speak on that? Like, what are instances on where that is? I mean, on, you know, how we can know as believers whether we have that gift or not. And then I also wanted to ask, as I was reading, when I was reading that passage, is um, how he says that he gives the gift of healing to some. And I was thinking, like, you know, I was thinking, like, I wonder in... It says that he gives the gift of healing to some. So I'm thinking, like, maybe, I don't know, I was thinking, like, maybe in maybe God, I don't know, maybe there's, I don't know, if the Lord, either he, does, it, it, does he just not give that gift anymore? Or does he, maybe we haven't come across those believers, or, and when, and then my the last thing I was going to ask is, a friend of mine asked me a question, right, and they, it's something that they did years ago, and, you know, they felt, I guess they still live with the regret of what, their actions, and, they were saying, you know, how they've asked God to forgive them many times, and um, now this person's not a believer, right? But um, so I was, and they're at saying that they asked God. Why I shouldn't say they're not a believer? They're not saved. But what I'm saying is that they were saying to me that they um, had asked God to forgive them, and I was like, well, if you ask God to forgive you, then. You know, and God forgave you. you just know, sometimes we have to forgive ourselves. But then I got in the back of my mind, I was thinking, like, does God offer forgiveness to people, or does He only offer them forgiveness of their sins when they receive Christ as their Savior? And I don't. You understand what I'm asking?
2: Yep, I okay. sure do, Daniel. Thank yeah. you. Okay. I'm I'll gonna. I'm gonna. Answers. Thank you. I'm gonna take that last question first because it's an important one. Um, God offers forgiveness to everybody in the person of Jesus Christ. What your friends are experiencing, you indicated they were not believers. Uh, what they're experiencing is just regret, remorse, guilt, uh, and, and all of those things, uh, th- th- those are good things, and, you know, uh, to, to, to feel guilty if you are guilty is a good thing. But the reason it's a good thing is because it should drive them to the person of Jesus Christ. If somebody comes to me and said they did something really, really terrible, and this happens frequently. I did something so long ago, I can never live it down. I don't know how God could ever forgive me." Uh, I, I say, well, He will, but, but forgiveness comes in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you really want your sins to be forgiven, then ask Jesus into your heart. So there's no forgiveness extended because there's no sacrifice for sins, uh, uh, the only sacrifice for sinful humans was a perfect human sacrifice. That's why Jesus had to die. That's what the atonement is all about. But for somebody, Daniel, to just want to be forgiven so they can feel better about themselves, they're barking up the wrong tree. There's no forgiveness available for those kinds of sins, nor can they go to the person that they sinned against and say, you know, I'm hoping you can forgive me. I shouldn't have done it. And that person says, okay, I forgive you. That doesn't mean they're okay because all our sin first and foremost is sin against God and unless we understand that we'll never go to the one through whom the forgiveness of sin comes so there is no forgiveness of sin available period apart from the person of Jesus Christ that's really important communicate that to your friend and let him know if you want to stop feeling guilty if you want to stop carrying that burden uh... i can introduce you to Jesus and he'll take that burden for you another Um, it's a great read by the way it's a classic Um, uh, give people pilgrims progress Um, it's a great illustration in the example of Christian it's a great illustration of that burden of sin that we carry around and suddenly it's gone and it changes the rest of our lives so um, um, that's the answer to that question the other two questions I really like they're interesting questions Um, when it says he gives healings to some uh, the newer translations use the plural. It's not the gift of healing, like to one person. It's the gift of healings, and the people that receive the healing, they're the ones who receive the gift. The gift comes from heaven, and and this has been so distorted in our church culture that we we actually believe and pay a lot of money, and these people live extravagant lives. If somebody has what they call a healing anointing and God's given them that gift, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll sit through four and five and six offerings and we'll we'll see the silliest things all in the hope that that man who has the gift of healing will heal. That's not the gift of healing. The gift of healing is given to those who actually get healed. So it's not a matter of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or John or any of the others um performing some great miracle, the gift of healing is given to the person who's sick or the person who needs it. I have had the opportunity, the privilege to pray for countless people who have been sick, some of them uh, terminal, um, uh, some of them so seriously that, that we didn't know what the situation was going to be. And, and And believe me, I have no healing anointing A lot of the people that I've prayed for receive the gift of healing. I try to make sure that this is where God is leading me. And and we can ask with a grateful heart for anything. But there are times when God makes it really clear that he wants to heal. And then the person who's sick, Daniel, receives the gift of healing. So it's not one person who gets that gift or who gets that anointing. If that were the case, uh, and let's say, Daniel, you or I were that person... Uh, we'd spend the evening at one of our local hospitals or one of our children's hospitals, and, and we'd just empty the place. But but that's not the gift of healing. The gift of healing uh, is a healing received by those who are in need. So that's why the gift of healing, uh, that's how it's described in the book uh, of 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul. So I hope that makes sense. Um, with the other gift, uh, the gift of knowledge, this is a great gift. And, and it works different for everybody. You know, God doesn't pigeonhole into working through everybody in exactly the same way. But let me tell you how it works for me. Um, when I'm teaching the Word, and there is no gift of knowledge apart from knowing the Word. It's just that simple. Um, the, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible is the source of knowledge. It's also the source of wisdom. But there are times when I am preaching um, and the Lord will speak to my heart about somebody uh, in the church. Now, not somebody specific. It's not somebody that I know. But somebody who's struggling with something. And I'll deal with that. As I'm led by the Spirit, I'll deal with that in the course of the study. I'll be giving an invitation at the end of the study. And when I'll give just a, a, a general invitation for people to come forward to be saved, uh, the Lord will speak to my heart and say, there's somebody. And I'll just give you an example, one that happened recently. Um, uh, there's somebody who's feeling really guilty because they've been unwilling to, to... Uh, get rid of a relationship that they know is sexually sinful, and God wants you to know He loves you, and He wants you to exchange that relationship for relationship with Him, that's the the word of knowledge God gives them. And and, and almost invariably, somebody will then come up and respond to that word of knowledge. There was another time, um, Daniel, where there was a, a guy who kept uh, coming and running out of the appointments. He would sit down with me. And, and he would want he, you could it was obvious he he wanted to tell me something but he just never could do it and he'd just run out and finally I set him down and before he could leave I said look I know and, and his his was a sexual issue I said I know this is what you're running from and he looked at me with his eyes wide open God just gave me a gift of, of knowledge a word of knowledge so uh, it's used to get people to that place where Jesus uh, where they can meet Jesus. So I hope that answers. Let's go to Harold holding online, too. Harold, thanks for being patient. You're on the air.
5: Sure. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, Hi. Yeah. Hi. I was listening to a sermon this this morning on the radio on on this same station, and and it was a good sermon, and it was around 2 uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1 through 3 or something like that. But anyway... The, I was curious about your thought on it. The the uh, preacher there had said, you know, when you refer to Jesus Christ, you know, that means Jesus Christ, the one we talk in the Bible. But anytime you read where it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, when you hear the or you read the word Lord, that refers to the second coming. And that was in the second, uh, second Timothy, like I said. So, you know, Just to be fair, and I I was just curious if, not not that that's true or not, but I was just wondering if other pastors thought along those same lines as being when you read Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, Paul's talking about the second coming. And I'll hang up and listen to that on the air if you like.
2: Yeah, thank you, Harold. I I appreciate the call. Um, um, I don't know what to say to that, Harold, other than its silliness. Um, If you're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, If you're talking about Jesus Christ, if you're talking about Jesus our Savior, or Jesus our Lord, it's talking about the person of Jesus Christ, and it has no qualification uh, with regard to his second coming. Now, uh, maybe what you did was was here, or he misspoke, but when he talks about the day of our Lord, that's always a reference to the second coming of Jesus, but that's the only place where that's a reference to the day of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the, the time, the Old Testament says, of, of Israel's distress. Uh, that's always a reference to that moment that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. When when he returns, he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, and he judges the world that uh, uh been in opposition to him. So the day of the Lord always is a reference to that day when Jesus is going to come back and make things right. He's going to destroy his enemies. But when you're in the book of, of um, Second Timothy especially, this is this was Paul's last um, um, communication, the, the most personal of all of them. And um, he, he talks about the last days. There'll be terrible times, chapter 3 says, in the last days. Uh, and, and he describes the time that we live in. But uh, that makes no connection or has no connection whatsoever to uh, Jesus, um, our Lord. Um, um, so d- 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 different ways. Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ our Lord, Jesus our Savior, Jesus who is God over all. all those are a reference to the, the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, I don't know who you are listening to, but if that's what he said, that's not right. So, thank you for your discernment, Harold, and thank you for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We got time left to take a call if you are still interested. Here is a question from Aaron. He wants to know, Pastor Ron, I have a lot of doubts that I battle. Do you ever have any doubts about Christianity being true, uh, Aaron? I don't want to. I, 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 I'm almost afraid to answer this because I don't want to give the enemy an opportunity. Um, to um, to pound you. Um, but but I've never had a single doubt about Christianity being true from the day I got saved. Now, part of that, Aaron, um, comes from um, my, my search, and it was uh, the most important search of my life to find out if the word of God was true. Um, but But I've never doubted, even from the very first moment that I was going to be in heaven with Jesus. Um, now we all have doubts about things, and the enemy brings those doubts. Now I shut the door to those doubts a long time ago. You know, as a pastor, especially one who who speaks as directly as I do, Aaron, uh, we have people uh, who who they, they want to be sure. Um, well, the only way to be sure is to close those doors. And here's what I've decided. I decided a long time ago, and especially with this issue is this issue of the Bible being the Word of God. Once I purposed in my heart to find out if it was true, as a new believer, I didn't understand how the Bible could be the, written by men and yet be the Word of God, so I checked it out. I've told that story many times on this program, but once I knew it, it was, it was as though I was sitting, This it was a, the Claremont School of Theology, a very liberal place, uh, lots of junk in their books, but some good stuff too, uh, and, and I was going through this. It took me about three months, give or take a week. Uh, and and finally I got to the place, and I was in this room, had books stacked up everywhere. And it was as though Jesus was in the room with me, Aaron. And it was like he said, okay, are you convinced? And at that moment I was convinced beyond any doubt. And I settled the issue once and for all. Now, the key, Aaron, because you do have a lot of doubts, is to settle the issue, and the next time the enemy, who will keep pushing, the next time he comes and casts any doubt at all or brings any doubt, you've got to say out loud, not to him, but to God, Jesus, I believe. I know who you are. I know what you did. I know what your word says, and I'm not going to entertain this doubt. You've got to do it with enough consistency that the enemy gets discouraged he'll go on to other things. So I understand people that have doubts. Uh, I understand that my situation is unique. It's just uh, the gift of faith that God gave me a long time ago. Once I settled the issue, had my questions answered, I've never for a moment had any doubts about it being true. I've never had any doubt about whether or not um, uh, I was a Christian, my sins were forgiven, I was going to be with him. And Aaron, if you can fight this battle, if you can settle it once and for all, it will enrich your life immeasurably. We close that door to Satan and our faith increases. Instead of listening to the enemy tell lies about these doubts, we open the Bible and say, this is what I stand on. That's why our Bible program, by the way, is called is our reader program is called The Word to Stand On, our teaching program, and this program, of course, is The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I'm standing on that truth, and I'm never going to be shaken. Now, it doesn't mean the enemy doesn't try to bring doubts. It just means that I get rid of them quickly, because ah, that's old news. I've already made that decision that here's what I believe, I know it's true. It's also, Aaron, one of the reasons that the Lord has been able to use me with some level of effectiveness in in, in dealing with people who uh, want to convince me that other ways are true as well. Uh, I, I'm logical to a fault, and if something is true, and it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today, it's going to be true 2,000 years from now, should Jesus dare. So I, I've just owned those battles And, um, um, you know, I've got lots of openings that the the enemy has in my life, but, but this isn't one of them. So this is a battle worth fighting. Do me a favor, Aaron, read Ephesians, the first three chapters. If you're good at memorizing, memorize it. If you're not, just read it repeatedly, just the first three chapters, and you'll be so convinced that this is what God did for you, that you'll be able to have the ammunition to fight with. Thanks, Aaron, for the question. Hey, thanks for the calls today. appreciate the questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word to take your phone calls and answer your questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. And I will see you tomorrow. Lord willing, God bless you.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.